during my family's time in Italy, there on the northeastern part of the country, there was a city near our house on the Adriatic coast called Rimini. Rimini was founded by the Roman Republic in 268 BC. It's a very old city. And in the middle of that city square is a pillar. And that pillar is a monument to Julius Caesar when he went through that city with his legions down into the Rubicon River. And that monument is there that commemorates when he famously said as they passed that river, Alea Yacta Est, which in Latin means the die has been cast. See, Julius Caesar knew the irrevocable risk of no return. By crossing that river, he would be declaring war on the Roman Republic and ushering in his new Roman Empire. Some almost 2,000 years later, the fascist Benito Mussolini, alongside 30,000 men dressed in black shirts, marched on the same city of Roma in similar fashion. And from the great stately Palazzo Vecchio there in Rome, he looked out upon his audience and he stated that his agenda was similar to that of Julius Caesar, to usher in a new empire in Italy. He said this empire would be a fascist empire, an empire of peace. Both of these men brought new empire arrivals. Both of these men marched on Rome and they were hailed as absolute leaders for a season. Their empires, while coming with incredible force, were short-lived and both rulers were brought down with bloodshed and death. I think that these specific empire arrivals speak to how we ourselves this morning perceive how kingdoms should arrive in this world. And the gospel writer Luke, I think, has a similar objective for his readers. And this is his objective. The kingdom of God, the nature of God's kingdom, not only arrives in a way that we least expect, but it's it's arrival shatters our presuppositions about what God's kingdom should be like. And so with that in mind, I would like us to go to our text. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, up into the text this morning, into chapter 13, Luke is trying to compose a narrative with repeated emphasis on one concept, and that is the Sabbath. Now he's doing this because any law-abiding Jew at that time would know that the Sabbath finds its roots in the Exodus. We know the fourth commandment is grounded in the law of Sinai. But in that account, in that concept in Exodus, its basis, its origins, finds its place in the creation narrative of Genesis. Later on in Deuteronomy, when the law has been given, that that Sabbath concept signifies something renewed. It signifies redemption from Egypt, in which the children of Israel were freed from the bondage of satanic oppression in Pharaoh. And so much that Luke has been trying to build on thematically in this text, I believe comes to a theological point with the healing of this woman. In verse 10 and verse 11, if you have your Bibles, look there with me. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, and she could not fully straighten herself. 
So just imagine with me. Let's imagine we're there. He's sitting there teaching in the synagogue, and this woman comes over. Everyone sees her. Everyone knows her. And that's because we all know in village life, there's no news that's private. Everyone knows everybody. And we used to imagine they knew who this woman was and where she had come from. Some today speculate on whether or not she also had a, not just a physical element, a physical disease, but also that there were psychological causes to her infirmity. Maybe someone abused her when she was little, and as she grew, her muscles and her bones didn't grow the way she thought. She was twisted up. She could not stand straight. But there's more to this. Jesus calls this woman daughter of Abraham. This is very unique language. Unique language we do not find out, find in other accounts. So that the, the writer here, Luke, is trying to show us she is representing something larger than just herself. She represents Israel. And that's because the daughter of Abraham, the Jews of Jesus' day, Israel, are suffering under satanic oppression. Only Jesus can set them free. So what he wants to do for this woman, he wants to do for the entire nation. We see this theme in this repeated expression of 18 years. 18 years enforces the idea this woman has to be viewed in not just historical terms, but also in symbolic terms. In the entire New Testament, you will not find the number 18, but in this chapter, twice. The beginning of the chapter, the Jews are asking Jesus, why did those Galileans have to die? Were they worse sinners than us? And Jesus tells them, do you remember when the Tower of Siloam fell on those 18 people killing them? Accidents happen. It's not that they were worse off than you. And so Luke uses 18 once again in this woman's story. He's trying to point us to something beyond what's happening in the synagogue. Now we won't find 18 in the New Testament, but we will find it in the Old Testament. In the book of Judges, in chapter 3, verse 14, we see the Israelites, they are suffering for a period of 18 years. We see a cycle of disobedience resulting in Yahweh abandoning Israel to her enemies. This 18 years seems to be a, a heightened period of suffering for Israel as they are being captured and oppressed by a Mesopotamian king. Luke's allusions to the story of Judges with using 18, he's trying to place the healing of this daughter of Abraham into a much larger paradigm of the daughter of Abraham, Israel, in a continual Exodus theme throughout Scripture. And that's what he's trying to put forth here in relation to God's kingdom. Creation, redemption, oppression, liberation. In verses 12 and 13, Luke tells us that while Jesus was teaching, he saw her. He interrupted his teaching. Highly unusual for a Jewish man to do. And he calls out, woman, you are freed from your disability. He lays his hands on her 
And we see in the text the word Luke always uses immediately she stood up straight. Immediately she stood up straight and she gave glory to God. What is fascinating about this account is that there is no address to the sin in her life. There's no request from Jesus to her to repent of something she's done wrong. There's no talk about forgiveness. Just instant, compassionate healing. That would have been remarkable for the people in that audience, in that synagogue. They would have been stunned to see something like this. And that's because in a Jewish mind... If she was having some sort of physical ailment or physical problem, it was reflective about her spiritual state. She must have done something wrong. Read the book of Job. Job's friends. You must have done something wrong. Compassionate, instant healing. Jesus is bringing his kingdom into their midst by bringing freedom to this woman. Luke continues. We see in verse 14 that after this healing, after this compassionate freeing from bondage, there is immediate opposition. There's immediate opposition to the arrival of God's kingdom. Ironically, the oppressors in Luke's gospel are not the Romans are not some neighboring empire, but the very Jewish theological teachers who, having studied the scriptures, opposed giving spiritual and physical freedom to this woman, to this daughter of Abraham, on the very day, Sabbath, that commemorates release and liberation. This is what the opposition to God's kingdom is in this text. But in verse 15 and 16, we see that Luke wants to highlight how this opposition is going to be dealt with. Look at the text with me in verse 15. Luke does not say, Jesus answered the teacher. In the Greek, Luke says, Kyrios, the equivalent of Yahweh. The Lord answered the teacher. Jesus is not just some visiting pastor that's trying to lead a synagogue astray. He is the very incarnation of Yahweh that put the law in stone. Jesus goes on to tell the leaders there that they were hypocrites because they were willing to care for their animals on the Sabbath, but not willing to care for God's people who Satan had bound What's incredible to me is that this this theological teacher doesn't even try to go to a proof text. He doesn't even try to use the Bible. But he grounds his views instead in what he thinks God wants. And that's because for a cultural Jew of that time, he was willing to separate the precepts of the Sabbath, the law of God. He was willing to separate that with allowing this woman to experience physical freedom. In other words, he wasn't allowing church family. He wasn't allowing the kingdom of God to interact with the control he thought he had over his spiritual life. It didn't matter the implications for this woman 
or for the people he served. When we think about this in our context, here in Georgia, here in the Bible Belt, we have to be so careful not to get into this type of thinking. And that's because we all struggle with exercising certainty and control over our spiritual lives. And the reason why we do that is because we do that in every aspect of our life. We have our work lives. We have our family lives. We have our recreational lives. Perhaps we have hidden sin life, all neatly segmented and attached to Google Calendar. And when the kingdom of God comes into our midst and Jesus brings the kingdom into our lives and into our families' lives in such a way as he does in the synagogue text, are we allowing his kingdom to have dominion and authority over all of those nice, segmented aspects of our lives? Are we allowing him to have complete and utter control? Or do the margins and limitations of our spiritual life leave on Sunday afternoon? In verse 17, we see that Jesus' response not only defeats the challenge of this teacher, but all who wanted that challenge were shamed. And the people who witnessed this rejoiced and gave glory to God. Brothers and sisters, we must remember that any challenge that comes up against the kingdom of God will be shamed. No matter how great the challenge may look against our King and Lord, they will be shamed. They will be put to shame. But let me please tell you, they will not be put to shame by great debates. They will not be put to shame by theologically pristine, righteous-looking people. They will be put to shame by the insignificance and the marginalized people who have been set free and experienced freedom and healing like this woman has. That's how they will be put to shame. This is how the victory of God's kingdom unfolds. It happens in a way that is unlike the powers of the kingdoms at hand. The victory of this kingdom was foretold. If you go back in the Old Testament, the prophet Daniel tells us this. He tells us, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. That shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Maybe some of us here this morning are thinking, that sounds great, but what does his kingdom have to do with the healing? I don't see that connection. I don't see how the healing can relate to the nature of God's kingdom. If you look with me at verse 18, Jesus connects it to that. This is not me. Jesus, Jesus is saying, you've just seen this healing. You've just seen a miracle in my presence. Now let me explain it to you. It's like this. 
This is the nature of God's kingdom. In verse 18 he says, therefore, as many of you know what that means, thus and so, therefore, what you've just seen, let me explain it. What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? I imagine they struggled with this question. Otherwise he wouldn't have addressed it. Maybe we struggle with it too today. We can easily look around at church, at society, in the midst of so much division in this country and think, if this is how his kingdom comes, I don't want any part of it. We speak of love and yet we find it hard to love. We talk about peace and yet we just continually fight. We think of ourselves as generous people, but we can't go to bed at night with the anxiety and the worry and the the fear of the fleeting nature of our finances. We are tempted to think this way daily as a people. We are, in many ways, we're divided and we're depressed. And once we get done looking at our Facebook pages and we get done watching our news stations, we just think maybe the only hope we have on this earth is spiritual. Maybe we're just here for a few years just to be taken. Maybe we don't have to worry about now. Let Jesus handle it. Because all that talk about your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, it's just too much to get on board with. If we are tempted daily to look at life this way, I want to encourage you, church. I believe the Lord Jesus wants to give us a different paradigm for how we might look at his kingdom. Look with me at verse 19. Jesus says that in comparing the kingdom of God, if you want to know what it's like, this is what it's like. It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. Now, we have a picture of what Jesus had in mind when he speaks of the implications of this mustard seed. Israel is the tiny mustard seed planted among the nations. And Jesus says it becomes a tree. Now you can see from this picture that's not strictly true, is it? The mustard seed produces a bush, a shrub, a large shrub to actually be approximate, eight to ten feet in height, but not a tree. So what is Jesus up to? Had he ever seen other trees in Israel in his life growing up? Well, of course he did. There were Lebanese cedars like this one all throughout Israel. But by evoking the idea of tree, the name tree that he uses, he's calling to mind for all of Israel those images from prophets like Ezekiel. When Ezekiel in chapter 17 speaks of God's people becoming a cedar that spreads throughout the land. By contrast, this mustard shrub is pathetically small. 
To say that the birds of the air, representing the nations of the world, find refuge and shade in its branches, just like they do in a Lebanese cedar, sounds pathetic. It sounds laughable. But church family, that is Jesus' point. Israel was planted in the field of the world. It was a tiny mustard seed. And when it grew up, it became a shrub. Even Jews looking at this shrub were tempted to despise it. Jews reading and interpreting the scriptures of the Old Testament, looking at this pathetic little bush, are tempted to put their fortunes in the high, mighty cedars. Let's be like Egypt. Let's be like Babylon. Let's be like Greece. Let's be like Rome. At least they look like trees. Yet God's kingdom, church family, despite appearances, is the tree in which the birds of the air nest. This is why the kingdom of God is a mystery, brothers and sisters. This is why people cannot understand its nature. What should look like a cedar, what should be great by appearances, looks like a mustard shrub. But if we aren't convinced of the way Jesus uses this example, he wants to give us a second one. He wants to bring it home. In verse 20, And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took, so yeast. It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now this illustration is truly remarkable for me. Jesus is asking men and women, privileged and peasant, rich and poor in this synagogue to enter the domain of a first century woman house cook in order to gain perspective on the kingdom of God. Somehow Jesus is confident that a small amount of yeast, just a small amount, can invade and leaven Three measures of flour. Now, I'm not that good of a cook, but when I read this text as a modern American, the first thing that comes to my mind is a, a measure, a measuring cup, right? Three measures of flour. Seems like that can happen. That sounds doable. Three measures of flour. That could make three loaves of bread, something like that. That seems plausible. But when Jesus says three measures of flour, he means 75 pounds of it. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of dough. That's enough flour and dough to feed up to 200 people bread. Jesus is confident that a small amount of yeast can invade enough dough that can feed up to 200 people. Insignificant yeast invading all of that flour. Something like satanic domination being repelled and the kingdom of God is made present even in something so small, so inconsequential as healing and restoring an ill woman who lived on the margins of society. 
That's what the nature of the kingdom of God is like. Interestingly, this amount of flour is the same amount that Abraham asked Sarah in Genesis 18 to prepare when they have a meal with Yahweh and two angels in Genesis 18. Sarah makes enough bread for 200 people. When God is promising that future seed, when God is promising that future kingdom, she takes three measures of flour. Sounds like southern hospitality. Jesus is saying with this illustration that once the yeast is introduced into the dough, its growth cannot be stopped. He is saying here that the reign of God cannot be slowed, even though it's hidden, even though it's insignificant, even though you can't see it leaven the dough, it cannot be stopped, and it will one day, it could take thousands of years, but it will one day fill the world with the reality of God in it. The Apostle Paul highlighting this aspect of the nature of the kingdom in 1 Corinthians, quoting the psalm says, Then comes the end when he delivers Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For Jesus must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, we may never have read that verse with this context in mind. But we sing its implications every Advent Christmas season. I think this is what Isaac Watts had in mind, the great renowned hymn writer, when he wrote in his third stanza of Joy to the World, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Church family, I believe Isaac could write that into his song because he believed what he put in the beginning of his fourth stanza because he rules the world with truth and grace. This perspective on God's kingdom is a radical shift from how Jesus' audience in his synagogue understood the kingdom. This would have been truly strange for them. And that's because their expectations were founded in a theological tradition and a type of interpretation of the scriptures where they believed God's kingdom would come literally and immediately They were taught that this kingdom would come in the Messiah with the speed of a freight train and that this Messiah would take the throne literally in Jerusalem and would fight physically against Rome and finally defeat Rome. They believed this and they hoped for this so that Israel could finally be a cedar tree. And yet when we look at these two examples in the scriptures, we see not only a minuscule beginning, but an almost invisible arrival. When we look at the arrival of other kingdoms, like Julius Caesar and like Mussolini, 
Jesus' kingdom scarcely attracts attention. But it is growing. It is victorious. It is a living organism in the church. And it will, in time, surprise everyone. But I want us to go back to the synagogue leader's response. I think his reaction, his opposition to the kingdom of God might highlight a a question we may need to ask ourselves this morning. How do we respond when we see the kingdom of God arrive in a way that doesn't fit our cultural paradigm? Do we live our lives in a way where we can rattle off some theological precept that may be right like this guy did? And be yet completely oblivious to God's kingdom in our daily life? Can we do that? How does his kingdom shape? How does his kingdom bring restorative creation into our jobs? Into the way we speak to our husbands and wives? Into the way we try to control our families and our children? And the way we speak to them? How does his kingdom transform all of that? As we reflect on that question, I think there are two thoughts that we might leave with here today. The first thought is this. At the heart of these parables is the centrality of faith. Faith means patience. A lump of 75 pounds of dough is not leavened immediately. God's kingdom comes slowly. And if we are going to keep in step with our king, we must be patient, church family. Faith means that we don't trust necessarily in sight or we don't trust our senses when we're looking at everything going on around us, especially when we may or may not agree with the person in the White House. Faith means patience. And the second point, Jesus shows us that the ways of his kingdom are not the ways of the kingdoms of this world. It arrives slowly imperceptibly, silently, and even when it arrives in our midst, it doesn't overwhelm us with its grandeur. So, brothers and sisters, as a church family, are we focused? Are we focused on what arrives slowly? Are we invested in the imperceptible? Are we honoring those who serve this church family that do it behind the scenes? Are we prone to imitate Jesus even when we aren't noticed for it? I get that this may not be the type of kingdom we would expect, but it is the kind of kingdom we should expect from a king that begins it with a death on a cross. As we close, I'd like to read a poem, if I may. A poem written by a man named Malcolm Guite. Malcolm is an Anglican priest in the UK, and he writes lots of poems on the nature of God's kingdom, and he wrote a poem on the seed of God's kingdom, and I would love to to read it to you as we close. I hope it stirs your heart's affections as it did mine. Malcolm writes, Least of all seeds, a singularity, complete compression of the infinite, Still point containing all polarity, sown in the field of being by your love. 
Simplicity begets the intricate. A coming cosmos waiting to explode flings out this whirling world in which we move, brings us to birth within our own abode. So too, your kingdom comes. A single seed, too tiny to be seen, sown in the womb, and then sown deeper still to meet our need, a second sowing in the stone-cold tomb, till in your spring and growth alive and free, you raise us to the branches of your tree. Crosspoint family, may we with faith embrace a kingdom, a kingdom whose strength is often found in the repetitive, mundane, humble, daily hospitality in our dining room tables, whose power comes from a weekly sacramental worship with God and a meal, a meal that points to transformation now, not just in the future. Because his kingdom will not allow the cedar empires of this world to defeat us. But with faith and humility, it will make all of God's enemies the footstool of Jesus while he reigns until death is vanquished.